went to Colombia, which was frightening. Yeah. Um, because in those days, there was a very high level of crime mm-hmm. in Colombia. Yeah. And uh, so um, that wasn't a country that we were going to spend yeah. too much time in. Uh, was there a risk in some of these other countries that you would do business and you would send them some, some whiskey and you would never get the payment for it and never hear from That it? was always the problem. Yeah. But fortunately, not something that we suffered. I was kind of hoping we'd hear a, a story of you meeting some cartel and doing business like that. But no, no, kept out of I was too scared. Yeah, fair enough. And any stories from carnivals probably not suitable, is it? Uh, probably not. <laughs> Welcome back to the Whiskey Legends podcast, where I speak to my granddad, Tim Morrison, about how the industry has developed over the last hundred years. In this episode, we hear about how relationships were formed with some of the most successful businesses and wealthiest families in the US and Canada, and what it was like trying to travel and build relationships in the South Americas in the 60s. If you have any feedback or questions you'd like featured in future series, please leave them in the ratings or our YouTube and social channels, which you can find in the description. So after North British, that was then when you joined the the family business? Yeah, in January 61. And was that because you pushed for it? You felt like you had enough experience now? I felt that I had probably, A, I had enjoyed hugely what I had done. Yeah. I had also found it very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, had met a lot of people, um, found the distilling industry very interesting. Yeah, because you um, always said, you, you said to me you would give it, what, a year yeah. and then see. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you say, you sort of fell in love with it a bit. Indeed. and uh, But I think the other thing was that I had made an awful lot of contacts mm-hmm. uh, as friends. Uh, people the same age as me, and um, and so that that had a big impact. Yeah, I think that's a big thing for a lot of people within the whiskey industry, even now, isn't it? When I go to these, you know, when I've worked for you at the the events yeah. and um, tastings and things like that, everyone knows each other. Everyone's friendly, sure. helps each other out. It's not like you know, super competitive and don't like certain companies and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I guess that's something that's kind of remained over the last, what, 100 years, I guess. Um, I mean, it's, it's the, the whiskey industry has, has always been a very close-knit industry, you know, with the families. And um, there, was, there was a mutual respect in the industry mm-hmm. for each other and the companies. And it was also a very social, sociable industry. And um, there was a lot of golf events. Um, there was quite a number of social events, um, well supported by by people in the industry. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's, it. in fact, it is the, the case today that yeah, you know, the whiskey industry is is very sociable. Yeah, and um, you know, the, I think the other thing you would be surprised is the extent of the family relations that you would not have believed, you know, find out that Cardew Distinery, the, their son-in-law is related to um, probably the guy who was the family who owned Hague and yeah. and so on and so forth. And um, one was constantly amazed by, by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that's got a lot to do with 
the number of family companies that are yeah that are out there yeah as well so you kind of took that into stanley um stanley P. Morrison. P. morrison business what was your i guess your your starting role there what were you doing basically when i joined the company it was um to be sent out to networking meet. and yeah to network and um um and um you know just make myself known um and understand what all these other businesses did yeah and how did you do that? Was that meeting rooms? Was it rooms in uh, Soho no, bars? And... No, 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 not then. Um, basically, it was in people's offices. Yeah, yeah, or have lunch, yeah. or my father would take me to a to a lunch, and or you sort I'd of shadow him a bit. Take, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. what was the the role after that when you first started properly taking on more responsibility? Um, I was introduced to the broking. Um, side of the business and um, which was never something that really terribly interested me why is that I don't know because your just, brother was the he was when he joined the business yeah and he joined when about 63 I think so, so what, a couple of years after you um, yeah he came straight from school and then went to work for Dalmore for um, a period he was more on the brokerage yeah, absolutely. side of things. Sure. But you did still you did still do it when did, you first started. Yeah. And yeah. where was that? Mainly in the UK? Oh absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um and then I was um basically sent out uh to go around the trade and so literally from Glasgow, Carlisle, um Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool, London. Tour of the country, basically. Tour of the country, that's right. Yeah. And what were you getting up to on these trips? Was it again just meeting? It was, it was to meet people um, and see if anybody was um, prepared to sell casks from. And the, the, these were companies that were uh, one in spirit wholesalers, and they had their own brand, um, and um, they used to fill whiskies from various distilleries. I can imagine all these places you were travelling around in the 60s, they must have looked extremely different to now Manchester, Birmingham, Liverpool. How are you getting around there? Uh, Well, um, basically by car. The only good thing was there wasn't a lot of other cars. And um, you could basically park um, or you would take the trains. The trains were good. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you'd stay in the hotels at the stations, you know, in the Midland. Did you spend much time in, in each city or is it just in um, I I probably did um, around the Britain two or twice a year. Yeah, okay. So you've you've done your, your tour of the UK, I guess you could call it. And then what was next for you? Who were the, the next big partners that you had? Well, we then decided that uh, we should visit the United States. And what year was that? That would be probably about 1962. And, and was this when, had you bought Beaumore no, by this we point? Bought so this Beaumore. was pre-Beaumore This still. was pre-Beaumore yeah. time. And um, we, we visited Montreal and we met the Bromfen family. 
And the Bromfman family were? The Bromfman family were the owners of Seagram Distillers, which was at that time the, the largest distilling company in Canada and wow. the United States and was a very, very highly respected company. And of course, they were the owners of Shivers. Yeah, um, so they, they bought Shivers from your father. And they, is that how that original relationship was struck up? Or I, I suppose that must have been when the original relationship was established between yeah. Sam Bronfman and my father. And the Bronfman family, they weren't just in whiskey, were they? They had a number of... Well, they uh, much later, they became involved in the film industry. Mm-hmm. And um, and to, a le- to uh, another extent, um, the chemical company, because um, um, they had very, a very large share in DuPont. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was the next generation that really took the, the company into, or the family into, uh, the film industry. Right, but they were sort of pioneers within the liquor industry. Why was that? Well, they were obviously during prohibition in America. The 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 distillation, or rather, the companies in Canada were still able to continue with distillation. Right, and um, they obviously must have moved fairly large amounts of liquor across the border. Yeah, um, illegally. Yes, and. Um, a, over Lake Michigan, mm-hmm. um, there are a number of books written about um, the escapades that took took place in those in those days in the thirties. Yeah. Um, so they were well set up by the time it became were, legal, basically. They were very well set up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, they were legal as a Canadian company anyway. Yeah. Um, and what did they do to the, the Shivers brand after they bought it from your father? Well, when they bought it uh, from us, they d- determined that they would be aim it at the premium sector of the market. And um, so Shivers was a 12-year-old whiskey. Yeah. And um, it, it still is to this day. They, yeah. So um, they were really, I guess, behind what we see today, that family in yes. Shivers. Yes, yeah. that's right. That's right. Yeah. And then um, uh, we can we had a close relationship with them in Scotland because we did a lot of business with them in Scotland as well. And then from there um, we met the Hiram Walker Company, um, who owned the Ballantines label, and uh, were based in Dumbarton, and where again we did a lot of business with. And Hiram Walker. They were another very large very company large at that point. Canadian distilling company, yeah. yes, who operated, who also had a distillery in Chicago okay, and uh, in Peoria. And we went actually to Peoria to, to visit the distillery and um, yeah. uh, see how they operated um, a grain distillery over there. And so the... The point of these visits, were you doing business or was it purely social? What were you sort of doing when you were out there? Basically, it was it was a fact-finding business um, operation. It was also the opportunity to meet the people who really mattered in the 
distilling and blending companies over in, and importers uh, in both Canada and America. Yeah, and I guess for your father to introduce you to his contacts and also their the sort of you to get to know your generation almost to that's keep right. those. That's right. Yeah, and I think you've mentioned before um, National Distillers Company. We we then went to um, to New York and met up with a number of companies there, primarily National Distillers and Chemical Company, and um, we then were able to establish uh, a blended bulk business. Yeah. We became a prime supplier uh, to them for their uh, um, domestically bottled scotch whiskey. Okay, and blended bulk, just for people listening, is? Blended bulk is where you 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 bring all your, your malts and your grains together, um, vat them together, um, and um, ship them out in bulk, i.e. either in casks, or in containers. Primarily in those days it was in, in casks. And um, they would then uh, bottle those, reduce the strength and bottle those. But would they put their own label, their own branding yes, to yes. it? Okay, so a, a large part of the business at that point was bulk and yeah, bulk blend. Absolutely, we didn't do any bottled yeah. stuff out to... Uh, the US market. So these relationships with these huge companies are crucial and, and key for the growth then yeah. of, of yeah. any business like SPM That's back right. in those days. That's right, yes. And did you do anything else when you were in America? Um, we visited another distilling company, uh, the American Distilling Company, yeah. uh, which were based in Pekin in Illinois. And I spent two or three weeks with them. And uh, which year was that? That was all all the right, same all sort the same of trip. Time. Yeah, yeah, Illinois must have looked and and been quite cool back then. Um, gosh, that's I can't remember. I think Pekin wasn't a very large city anyway. Mm. So you you were just working basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And what was the the purpose of working there? Just to just to see how uh, a grain distillery or worked how they uh, operated their uh, their business because they also imported blend from us for their domestic as their domestic scotch yeah so on the production line again yeah yeah and how what was the difference with the the grain to to what you've been doing what we've been talking about in the in the well of course episode? um the, the their method of distillation was quite different to ours because they used the the patent still, the coffee still, which was similar to our, our grain distilleries. It was a column still, not a pot still. So it was a continuous distillation rather than a batch distillation. Right. And what was the, you know, why did they do that? Is it for quantity or is I it think for taste? I, I, I think somehow they probably felt um, that the whiskey or the spirit that was being produced um, was of a much lighter nature than um, what you would have, what they might have experienced from from a Scotch 
malt whiskey um, in a in a pot still. Yeah, and uh, and the American. I mean, even now the American market they tend to lean towards a lighter whiskey, don't they? Absolutely. So yeah, and so I went and worked for them for um, for probably about two or three weeks, um, learning their business. So we were supplying them with bulk whiskey. Mm-hmm. And then came back and um, we decided that it would be worthwhile have a look at the South American market. It was probably embryonic in certain markets. Mm-hmm. But the one feature or the two features at that time was um, that in Brazil, the main brand was a brand called Drury's. And that was supplied with malt whiskey by two or three or four companies within the Scotch whiskey industry. And also in Argentina, Hiram Walker had a plant there and their brand was Old Smuggler. And they were supplying um, whiskey from Scotland there. So that was the in the hope that we might gather a little of that business, um, I went basically around South America and um, we had a fair modicum of success and established one or two um, importers and distributors, two or three that up until probably about 2000 we were still doing business really yeah. which uh which country specifically peru chile and um argentina and uruguay did it was uh i'm sure i've heard you talking about bolivia before yes bolivia but what had happened there was a coup in oh. bolivia um that scuppered that then. well five or six seven eight years after that and sadly the people who um ran the business they um they were caught in the coup as in they were they were killed yeah yeah so um those were the sort of things that one was up against at the time and um well i can imagine i mean what when you were in did you go to colombia places went to colombia which was frightening yeah um because in those days the the drug cart even the uh, criminal gangs were um, and there was a very high level of crime mm-hmm. in Colombia. Yeah. And uh, so um, that wasn't a country that we were going to spend yeah. too much time in. Uh, was there a risk in some of these other countries that you would do business and you would send them some, some whiskey and you would never get the payment for it and never hear from That them? was always the problem. Yeah. But fortunately, not something that we suffered. Yeah. Or experienced. Yeah. And when you were on the grounds meeting these people, what were the sort of things you were doing? I was looking looking at their uh, facilities to see what, you know, whether I felt it was they were capable of importing bulk. Yeah. Um, did they have the facilities for bulk? And did they um, in most cases or? Some of them did, but it was pretty basic. Yeah. By and large. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which was your... If you had to pick a favourite country at the time or best experience, probably Brazil. Yeah, yeah. That was when you had a week at at Carnival. Carnival, that's right. 
Purely coincidence. Yeah, I'm sure. Absolute coincidence. <laughs> In 1964, 19... 5, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. So you were there for three months, but carnival for probably a bit longer. Um, oh, no, 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 no. No, carnival only lasted a week in those days. But you were there for all of that? I, coincidentally. Yeah. Were there any other big drinks there then or was there not really because it must have been still quite a poor it was yeah all of those countries were poor at the time so i can't imagine they had lots of money for scotch and And the taxes on scotch scotch yeah were very high yeah and that's why they had the ad mixes yeah so it wasn't i mean it wasn't a waste of of time was it but it wasn't very lucrative no no um and you know obviously as you can imagine um That business was tied up within about three or four companies in the industry and they weren't going to let Anyone too else many into people it. into it. Yeah. Yeah. Got you. I was kind of hoping we'd hear a, a story of you meeting some cartel and doing business like that. but No, no. Kept out. Of, I was too scared. Yeah, fair enough. And any stories from Carnival is probably not suitable, is it? Uh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so UK, South America... South America, yeah. um, that was over what, sort of between 1960 and 1960? Probably 62 when I first went to America, so through to about 66 maybe. Yeah. In the meantime, of course, we had bought Beaumore. Well, that changed basically Stanley P. Morrison. Yeah. And um, we became a different company within the industry. In the next episode, we'll hear about the industry up to the 70s with my great-granddad's purchase of Beaumont Distillery on Isla and how deals like that were done. The mammoth task of transporting a couple of new stills and a boiler onto a small island with a little help from the British Navy and how both these actions helped propel the business to the next level. If you have any feedback or questions you'd like featured in future series, please leave them in the ratings or our YouTube and social channels, which you can find in the description.